Welcome to the Paranormal Factor Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Thanks for stopping by. This is the place to explore mysteries, investigate the otherworldly, and share stories of the inexplicable and the strange. You see, within the realm of our daily, ordinary lives, there is a paranormal factor always waiting to reveal itself. So let's begin exploring together the truly weird. Welcome listeners and thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you could join me for this new episode where we look into the 1952 UFO event that shook up Washington, D.C. But before we get started, let me remind you to visit our Facebook page where you'll find monsters, quizzes, film, TV, and book recommendations, and the latest current paranormal news in the world. Every week, we put out new content just for you. Now, on to our episode. It is one of the epic UFO cases in the early years of flying saucer hysteria in the 40s and 50s, the apparent UFO siege of Washington, D.C. In the control tower at Washington National Airport, Ed Nugent sees seven pale violet blips on his radar screen. What are they? Not planes, at least not any planes that were supposed to be there, 15 miles to the southwest of the capital, Washington, D.C. He summons his boss, Harry G. Barnes, the head of National's air traffic controllers. Here's a fleet of flying saucers for you, Nugent says, half-joking. Upstairs in the tower's glass-enclosed top floor, Controller Joe Zacco sees a strange blip streaking across his radar screen. He knows it isn't a plane. What is it? He looks out the window and spots a bright light hovering in the sky. He turns to his partner, Howard Coughlin, who is sitting three feet away. Look at that bright light, Zacco says. If you believe in flying saucers, that sure could be one. And then the light takes off, zooming away at an incredible speed. Did, did you see that? Coughlin shouts. What the hell was that? Well, Howard Conklin wasn't the only one who wanted to know the answer to that question. It was Saturday night, July the 19th, 1952, 70 years ago. One of the most famous dates in a bizarre history of UFOs. Before the night was over, a pilot would report seeing unexplained objects. Radar at two local Air Force bases, Andrews and Bowling, would pick up the UFOs and two Air Force F-94 jets would streak over Washington, searching for flying saucers. Then, a week later, it would happen all over again. More UFOs on the radar screen, more jets scrambling over Washington. The story of jets chasing UFOs over the White House took center stage and the front page headlines for newspapers across America. Saucer outran jet, pilot reveals, read the banner headline in the Washington Post. Jets chase D.C. sky ghosts, cried the New York Daily News. Aerial what's-its buzz D.C. again, shouted the Washington Daily News. Events culminating that summer in Washington, D.C. had everyone on edge. Objects appearing over two weekends in a row, over the United States Capitol of all places. Objects seen by military fighter pilots, commercial airline pilots, control tower professionals, and even people on the ground. Orders given to shoot them down. President Truman demanding answers. 
Air Force General John Sampford giving a much-publicized press conference in which he attributed the main confusion not to aliens from another world, but to weather. But few insiders in the military or intelligence community would believe that explanation. Neither did the CIA, who would get involved in trying to understand just what was going on. Welcome to the weird summer of 1952 and a UFO incident known as the Invasion of Washington. The events in Washington were not the first unexplained encounters reported. Debris from what observers called an alleged flying disc had been spotted in Roswell, New Mexico five years earlier, which Army officials were quick to say was from a weather balloon. By 1952, though, a number of sightings of UFOs were being reported across the country and the nation was on edge. No year in the history of UFOs had greater impact than 1952. It was a year in which the leadership of the United States Air Force was inundated with incredible reports of unknown objects from credible and competent witnesses. They described objects that looked like nothing they had ever seen, performing maneuvers that did not seem to be possible, and at times over very sensitive areas such as military bases and key technology sites. Not only were there reports in Washington, D.C. during this time, but all over the world. In the first six months of 1952, there were about 300 unexplained UFO sightings, four times the number during the same time period of 1951. By the end of July, there were about 400 reports, more than there had been in any other year in history. Life magazine's April the 7th, 1952 issue contained the article, Have We Visitors from Outer Space? It reviewed 10 recent UFO sightings and concluded that they could not be written off as hallucinations, hoaxes, or earthly aircraft. An unnamed Air Force intelligence officer was quoted saying, The higher you go in the Air Force, the more seriously they take the flying saucers. It wasn't the first media account of UFOs, but the Life article marked the first time a trusted mainstream magazine had given credence to the theory that UFOs might be alien spacecraft. The Life story was big news, covered in more than 350 newspapers across America. Soon, the number of UFO sightings reported to the Air Force skyrocketed from 23 in March, before Life's magazine article appeared, to 82 in April, 79 in May, and 148 in June. By mid-July, Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, the head of Project Blue Book, the Air Force's official UFO study team, was getting 40 reports of UFO sightings a day. Now, many were bogus, but some came from pilots and other respectable citizens, and Ruppelt, well, he took them seriously. Then, a few days before the first sightings at National Airport, Ruppelt interviewed a government scientist who made a startling prediction that Ruppelt recorded in his 1956 memoir, the report on unidentified flying objects. Within the next few days, the unidentified scientist said, banging his hand on his desk for emphasis, you're going to have the granddaddy of all UFO sightings. The sighting will occur in Washington or New York. Probably Washington. The scientist was right. From July the 12th to the 29th in 1952, a series of unidentified flying object sightings were reported in Washington, D.C. They would become known as the Washington Flap, the Washington National Airport sightings, and the invasion of Washington. The most publicized sightings took place on consecutive weekends, July the 19th through the 20th and July the 26th through the 27th. UFO historian Curtis Peebles called the incident the climax of the 1952 UFO flap. 
Never before or after did Project Blue Book and the Air Force undergo such a tidal wave of UFO reports, he said. July the 19th through the 20th. At 11.40 p.m. on Saturday, July the 19th, 1952, Edward Nugent, an air traffic controller at Washington National Airport, today Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport, spotted seven objects on his radar. The objects were located 15 miles south-southwest of the city. No known aircraft were in the area, and the objects were not following any established flight paths. Nugent's superior, Harry Barnes, a senior air traffic controller at the airport, watched the objects on Nugent's radar scope. He later wrote, We knew immediately that a very strange situation existed. Their movements were completely radical compared to those of ordinary aircraft. Barnes had two controllers check Nugent's radar. They found that it was working normally. Barnes then called National Airport's radar-equipped control tower. The controllers there, Howard Cochlin and Joe Zacco, said that they also had unidentified blips on their radar screen and saw a hovering bright light in the sky which departed with incredible speed. Cochlin saw what he recalled as a whitish-blue light that emanated from a solid object that was round with no distinguishing marks such as wings or a nose or a tail. It looked, he said, like a saucer. At this point, other objects appeared in all sectors of the radar scope. Watching the radar blips flying over the Capitol and the White House, Barnes called Andrews Air Force Base to report unidentified aircraft in restricted airspace. Although Andrews reported they had no unusual objects on their radar, an airman soon called the base's control tower to report the sighting of a strange object. Airman William Brady, who was in the tower, then saw an object which appeared to be like an orange ball of fire trailing a tail. It was unlike anything I had ever seen before, Brady said. As Brady tried to alert the other personnel in the tower, the strange object took off at an unbelievable speed. After midnight, Captain S.C. Casey Pierman, a Capital Airlines pilot, was waiting in the cockpit of his DC-4, ready for takeoff at Washington National Airport, when a bright light skimmed the horizon and disappeared. He didn't think much of it until he was airborne, bound for Detroit, and an air traffic controller told him two or three unidentified flying objects were spotted on radar traveling at high speed. Sometime after 1 a.m., National's control tower radioed Pierman and asked the pilot if he saw any unusual objects. Pierman, a pilot with 17 years of experience, radioed back, there's one, and there it goes. For the next 14 minutes, as he flew between Herndon and Martinsburg, West Virginia, Pearman saw six bright lights that streaked across the sky at tremendous speed. They were, he said, like falling stars without tails. Pearman was in radio contact with Barnes during his sighting, and Barnes later related that each sighting coincided with a blip we could see near his plane. When he reported that the lights streaked off at a high speed, it disappeared on our scope. Meanwhile, at Andrews Air Force Base, the control tower personnel were tracking on radar what some thought to be unknown objects, but others suspected were simply stars and meteors. However, Staff Sergeant Charles Davenport observed an orange-red light to the south. The light would appear to stand still, then make an abrupt change in direction and altitude, and this happened several times. At one point, both radar centers at National Airport and the radar at Andrews Air Force Base were tracking an object hovering over a radio beacon. 
the object vanished in all three radar centers at the same time. At 3 a.m., shortly before two Air Force F-94 Starfire jet fighters from Newcastle Air Force Base in Delaware arrived over Washington, all of the objects vanished from the radar at National Airport. However, when the jets ran low on fuel and left, the objects returned, which convinced Barnes that the UFOs were monitoring radio traffic and behaving accordingly. The controllers watched the UFOs flit across their screens until dawn, then disappear. The objects were last detected by radar at 5.30 a.m. Well, the local Washington, D.C. newspapers reported the extraordinary occurrences of the night before. Radar spots air mystery objects here, read the headline on the front page of the Washington Post. Air Force saucer expert will probe sightings here, said the Washington Daily News. The media also demanded answers. Nobody had any idea what, if anything, had been in the air over Washington on July the 19th, but the newspapers were demanding answers. At Andrews Air Force Base, Air Force personnel had gaped incredulously as bright orange objects in the southern sky circled, stopped abruptly, and then streaked off at blinding speeds. The sightings and radar trackings had continued until 3 a.m. By then, witnesses on the ground and in the air had observed the UFOs, and at times, all three radar sets had tracked them simultaneously. As exciting and scary as all this had been, it was just the beginning of an incredible incident. The next evening of July 20th, radar tracked UFOs as they performed more extraordinary movements in flight acrobatics. At Andrews Air Force Base, Betty Beale, an Air Force weather observer, said she saw objects approach the base runway and scatter as they were performing gyrations and reversals of an extraordinary nature. She reported their speed was in excess of 900 miles per hour. The objects were between 100 and 200 feet in diameter, and they gave off radar echoes exactly like those of aircraft or other solid targets. The sightings and trackings occurred intermittently during the week, and the incident seemed like it was coming to a close. But it wasn't. The lull came to an end when new sightings erupted in a frenzy over the following weekend. At 8.15 p.m. on Saturday, July the 26th, 1952, a pilot and stewardess on a National Airlines flight into Washington observed lights above their plane. Within minutes, both radar centers at National Airport and the radar at Andrews Air Force Base were tracking more unknown objects. Air Force Master Sergeant Charles E. Cummings visually observed the objects at Andrews. He later said, these lights did not have the characteristics of shooting stars. There was no tails. They traveled faster than any shooting star I have ever seen. Meanwhile, Albert M. Chop, the press spokesman for Project Blue Book, arrived at National Airport and joined the radar center personnel. By 9.30 p.m., the radar center was detecting unknown objects in every sector. At times, the objects traveled slowly. At other times, they reversed direction and moved across the radar scope at speeds calculated at up to 7,000 miles per hour. And civilian planes flying into Washington reported seeing strange glowing objects in places where the radar was getting blips. At about 10 p.m., Air Force Captain Ruffled of Project Blue Book was at home in Dayton, Ohio, when a reporter called to say that UFOs were back in the sky over Washington. He dispatched two Project Blue Book officers to National's control tower to see what was happening. At 11.30 p.m., 
two U.S. Air Force F-94 Starfire jet fighters from Newcastle Air Force Base in Delaware arrived over Washington. Captain John McHugo, the flight leader, was vectored toward the radar blips but saw nothing despite repeated attempts. However, his wingman, Lieutenant William Patterson, did see four white glows and chase them. He later told investigators, I tried to make contact with the bogeys below 1,000 feet. I was at my maximum speed, but I ceased chasing them because I saw no chance of overtaking them. According to Albert Chop, when ground control asked Patterson if he saw anything, Patterson replied, I see them now, and they're all around me. What should I do? And nobody answered, because they didn't know what to tell him. After midnight on July 27th, Major Dewey Fournette, Project Blue Book's liaison at the Pentagon, and Lieutenant John Holcomb, a U.S. Navy radar specialist, arrived at the radar center at National Airport. During the night, Lieutenant Holcomb received a call from the Washington National Weather Station. They told him that a slight temperature inversion was present over the city, but Holcomb felt that the inversion was not nearly strong enough to explain the good and solid returns on the radar scopes. Fournette communicated that all those present in the radar room were convinced the targets were most likely caused by solid metallic objects. There had been weather targets on the scope too, he said, but this was a common occurrence and the controllers were paying no attention to them. Two more jets from Newcastle Air Force Base were scrambled during the night. One pilot saw nothing unusual. The other pilot moved toward a white light which vanished when he closed in. A Capital Airlines flight leaving Washington spotted odd lights which remained visible for about 12 minutes. And as they did on July the 20th, the sightings and unknown radar readings ended at sunrise. The sightings of July 26th through the 27th again made front page headlines and led President Harry Truman to have his Air Force aide call Ruppelt and ask for an explanation of the sightings and unknown radar returns. Ruppelt told the president's assistant the sightings might have been caused by a temperature inversion. However, Ruppelt had not yet interviewed any of the witnesses or conducted a formal investigation. On Monday morning, the story of UFOs outrunning fighter planes was splashed across front pages all over America. In Iowa, the headline in the Cedar Rapids Gazette read like something out of a sci-fi movie. Saucers swarm over Capitol. We have no evidence they are flying saucers, an unidentified Air Force source told reporters. Conversely, we have no evidence that they are not flying saucers. We don't know what they are. In the absence of hard information, the Washington Daily News printed a roundup of rumors. The most persistent rumor was that the saucers were American aircraft secretly produced by Boeing at some remote site. An absolutely weird rumor was that the saucers were alien aircraft that had crashed and then been repaired and flown by the Air Force. The Air Force tried to reassure the nation by promising to keep jet fighters poised to chase the saucers at a moment's notice. White House concern may possibly have resulted in an order to shoot down the UFOs, reported in various international news service stories. One such story reported jet pilots had been placed on a 24-hour nationwide alert against the flying saucers with orders to shoot them down if they ignore orders to land. An Air Force Public Information Officer, Lieutenant Colonel Monsell Monte, confirmed the directive, stating, The jet pilots are and have been under orders to investigate unidentified objects and to shoot them down if they can't talk them down.
it was further stated that no pilot had been able to get close enough to take a shot at a flying saucer, as the objects would disappear or speed away as soon as an interceptor approached, sometimes outflying their pilots by as much as a thousand miles an hour. Some public protests resulted, including telegrams and letters to the White House stating the policy was dangerous if the UFOs were controlled by extraterrestrial beings, who would obviously be much more technologically advanced than humans. President Truman was as baffled as everyone else. He asked his Air Force aide, Brigadier General Robert B. Landry, to find out what the UFOs were. Nobody knew, not even Major General John Samford, the Air Force's Director of Intelligence. But that didn't stop Samford from calling a press conference at the Pentagon the following Tuesday afternoon. Samford's performance proved to be a brilliant demonstration of the art of bureaucratic double-talk. He arrived accompanied by Ruppelt and several other officials. With General Samford conducting the briefing to the press, the Air Force rolled out its official explanation of the Washington UFO flap. But not everyone was prepared to buy it. On July the 29th, 1952, Air Force Major Generals John Samford, Director of Air Force Intelligence, and Roger M. Ramey, Director of Air Force Operations, held a well-attended press conference at the Pentagon to reassure the public. At the event, Sanford stated the visual sightings over Washington could be explained as misidentified aerial phenomenon, such as stars or meteors, and unknown radar targets. Well, they could be explained by temperature inversion, which was present in the air over Washington on both nights the radar returns were reported. A temperature inversion occurs when a layer of cold air is trapped under a layer of warm air. It's most common in extremely hot weather of the sort that Washington has during summer months. The warm air can create a ceiling that causes radar beams to bounce down. Objects on the ground, moving cars, a row of telephone poles, for example, can appear to be thousands of feet in the air. The general conceded not all the details could be explained by natural causes. Witness reports have been made by credible observers of relatively incredible things, he said. It is this group of observations that we are now attempting to resolve. The news conference was front-page news, including in the Washington Times, which ran the headline, Air Force Debunked Saucers as Just Natural Phenomena. It was the largest Pentagon press conference since World War II. Press stories called Samford and Ramey the Air Force's two top UFO experts. And it seemed there were supporters of the position that nothing unusual had occurred. Among the witnesses who supported Sanford's explanation was the crew of a B-25 bomber, which had been flying over Washington during the sightings of July 26th through the 27th. The bomber was vectored several times by National Airport over unknown targets on the airport's radar scopes, yet the crew could see nothing unusual. Air Force Captain Harold May was in the radar center at Andrews Air Force Base during the sightings of July 19th through the 20th. Upon hearing that National Airport's radar had picked up an unknown object heading in his direction, May stepped outside. May said, I saw a light that was changing from red to orange to green to red again. At times it dipped suddenly and appeared to lose altitude. However, May eventually concluded he was simply seeing a star distorted by the atmosphere, and its movement was an illusion. At 3 a.m. on July the 27th, an Eastern Airlines flight over Washington was told an unknown object was in its vicinity. That crew also could see nothing unusual. At the request of the Air Force, the Civilian Aviation Authority's Technical Development and Evaluation Center 
did an analysis of the radar sightings. Their conclusion was that a temperature inversion had been indicated in almost every instance when the unidentified radar targets or visual objects had been reported. Project Blue Book would also label the unknown Washington radar blips as false images caused by temperature inversion and the visual sightings as misidentified meteors, stars, and city lights. In later years, two prominent UFO skeptics, Dr. Donald Menzel, an astronomer at Harvard University, and Philip Klass, a senior editor for Aviation Week magazine, would also argue in favor of the temperature inversion theory. In 2002, Klass told a reporter, Radar technology in 1952 wasn't sophisticated enough to filter out many ordinary objects, such as flocks of birds, weather balloons, or temperature inversions. The reporter noted that UFO proponents argue that even then, seasoned controllers could differentiate between spurious targets and solid metallic objects. Class disagreed, saying dismissively, it may be that we had two dumb controllers at National Airport on those nights. Almost from the moment of General Sanford's press conference, eyewitnesses, UFO researchers, and Air Force personnel came forward to criticize the temperature inversion explanation. In his book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, author Edward Ruppel, the former Air Force captain assigned to Project Blue Book, wrote that radar and control tower personnel he spoke to, as well as some Air Force officers, disagreed with the Air Force's explanation. According to Ruppel, when he was able to interview the radar and control tower personnel at Washington National Airport, not a single person agreed with the Air Force explanation. And Ruppel discovered that Hardly a night passed in June, July, and August in 1952 that there wasn't a temperature inversion in Washington. Yet, the slow-moving solid radar targets appeared on only those few nights. The United States Weather Bureau also disagreed with the temperature inversion theory. One official stated such an inversion ordinarily would appear on a radar screen as a steady line, rather than as single objects as were sighted on the airport radar scope. Dr. James E. McDonald, a physicist at the University of Arizona and a prominent ufologist in the 1960s, did his own analysis of the Washington sightings. After interviewing four pilot eyewitnesses and five radar personnel, McDonald argued that the Air Force explanation was physically impossible. Harry Barnes told McDonald the radar targets were not shapeless blobs such as one gets from ground returns under anomalous propagation. And he further stated he was certain the unknown radar blips were solid targets. Former radar controller Howard Cochlin agreed with Barnes. Cochlin told the Washington Post in 2002 he was still convinced that he saw an object, stating, I saw it on the radar screen and out the window over Washington National Airport. Ufologists also discounted the explanations. Experienced pilots saw the lights, said Robert Switek of the Mutual UFO Network and National's radar operators felt the anomalous signals were good, solid targets, as though they were being reflected from the surface of metallic aircraft. Headlines across the country echoed the sentiments expressed in the Washington Daily News. Saucer alarm discounted by Pentagon. Radar objects laid to cold air formations. In fact, the official Air Force position, which it had successfully obscured, was that the objects were unknowns. As rumors spread, President Truman demanded to know what was flying over his house, and soon the federal government was fighting the UFOs with the most powerful weapons in the Washington arsenal, 
bureaucracy, smokescreens, and jargon. Well, that seemed to do the trick. The UFOs never returned, at least not that we know of. After 70 years, the debate over the Washington UFO siege goes on. You have dueling experts and dueling reports, says Dr. Kevin Randall, author of Invasion Washington, UFOs Over the Capitol, a book about the 1952 sightings. One expert says it was temperature inversion. Another says it wasn't. In that situation, you have to refer back to the air traffic controllers and the pilots who actually saw the objects, he says. It's the reaction to the blips on the radar screen that really sets Washington's alleged alien incident apart, says Dr. Randall, who is also a prominent ufologist. At one point, Randall says fighter planes tried to head out to the UFO's locations. There was an attempted intercept, he says, but the planes got there and everything was gone. It seems that every time the fighters showed up, all the uncorrelated blips disappeared from the radar. In other words, all the UFOs went away, Randall says. When the fighters returned to base, the blips came back. In 2002, when he was 83 and retired, former controller Howard Cochran said he never saw anything like that saucer, never before nor since. Cochran was still convinced he saw an object over National that night. I saw it on the screen and out the window, he says. It was a whitish blue object, not a light, a solid form, an object, a saucer-shaped object. And it just went away, he said. In the summer of 1952, the strange sightings and the stories of jets chasing UFOs over the White House knocked the Korean War and the presidential campaign off the front pages of newspapers. Experts still disagree on what it was that was spotted in the sky those nights over the nation's capital. Even so, more than 70 years later, many people still accept the temperature inversion explanation. However, one key participant in the 1952 UFO siege of Washington changed its opinion about that explanation. In 1969, a scientific report released by the Air Force concluded that a temperature inversion strong enough to create the effect attributed to it by General Samford could not possibly occur in the Earth's atmosphere. Postscript, the Robertson Panel. The extremely high number of UFO reports in 1952 disturbed not only the Air Force, but also the Central Intelligence Agency. Both groups felt an enemy nation could deliberately flood the U.S. with false UFO reports, causing mass panic and allowing them to launch a sneak attack. On September the 24th, 1952, the CIA's Office of Scientific Intelligence sent a memorandum to the CIA's director. The memo stated that the flying saucer situation has national security implications in the public concern with the phenomena lies the potential for the touching off of mass hysteria and panic. The result of this memorandum was the creation in January of 1953 of the Robertson Panel. Dr. Howard P. Robertson, a physicist, chaired the panel. It consisted of prominent scientists and spent four days examining the best UFO cases collected by Project Blue Book to date. The panel dismissed nearly all of the UFO cases it examined as not representing anything unusual or threatening to national security. In the panel's controversial estimate, the Air Force and Project Blue Book needed to spend less time analyzing and studying UFO reports and more time publicly debunking them. Following the panel's recommendation, Project Blue Book would rarely publicize any UFO case it had not labeled as solved. 
Unfortunately, unsolved cases were rarely mentioned by the Air Force after the panel had done its work. Well, in our next episode, they've been seen the world over and for many centuries. There are legends and myths from many lands that talk about encounters with them. But over the years and recently in the United States, there have been more and more sightings of giant birds in our skies. But what are they really? Thunderbirds? Pterodactyls? Or just misidentified natural phenomenon? Whatever it is, people are definitely seeing something flying around. Join us as we nervously scan the skies for gigantic birds. Are they predatory? Should you grab some binoculars and bird watch? Or run for your life? Find out next time on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. And now it's time for the episode quiz. Yeah, quiz time. Here we go. The Flintville monster is what kind of monster? Is it A, werewolf, B, Bigfoot, C, dogman, or D, alien? Once again, the Flintville monster is what kind of monster? Is it a werewolf, a Bigfoot, a dogman, or an alien? And the answer is... B. A Bigfoot. This cryptid is reported to be very much like the famous Bigfoot in appearance, but with much more aggressive and dangerous behavior. It's been sighted and encountered around Flintville, Tennessee, an unincorporated community located about 10.5 miles southeast of Fayetteville. The creature has been reported to harass and threaten Flintville inhabitants, and the fear within the community is unmistakable. Those who have seen the creature describe it as standing seven feet tall and smelling like a skunk, a description we've heard many times before regarding Bigfoot creatures. One of the most famous encounters of this creature comes from a mother in the 1970s who claimed to have seen a large man-like ape running towards her son who was playing in a field. She ran to intercept it and barely got to him before the creature did. She ran back to her house with her son and called the police. But when they arrived to investigate the creature, all they found in the woods were 16-inch footprints and blood. Exactly what the Flintville monster is or where it came from remains a mystery, but the folks of Flintville are convinced the creature is not only real, but dangerous. So far, no one has been hurt by the Flintville monster. Still, for more than two decades, sightings and terrifying encounters have been reported. And some of the sightings and encounters with the massive hairy monster have been close calls according to those experiencing the confrontations. One man said a seven-foot-tall hairy monster chased him through the woods, howling and screeching at him like an ape. A woman said she hid on the floorboard when a similar creature attacked her car in 1976. The woman told police a giant hairy monster broke her automobile antenna and then jumped onto the roof of her car and began bouncing up and down. When the woman's story made news, other citizens stepped forth to describe similar encounters. Several attacks were reported in the early 1980s, including by a plumber who said his truck's windshield was smashed by the monster. In another encounter, a housewife said a black hairy creature chased her inside her house and repeatedly beat on the door. In 1989, a church pastor complained something had destroyed the windshield and antenna on his car. That same week, a group of teens reported a large, man-like ape loping across a field at the edge of town. 
throughout the South, from Arkansas to Virginia and Louisiana to Florida, reports of monsters resembling Bigfoot continued to be reported to law enforcement officers and park rangers. Most sightings can be dismissed as hoax or illusions triggered by poor visibility or unsteady imaginations. But a few, like the Flintville monster, cannot be explained away. With many sightings and an aggressive creature, this case warrants further investigation, so we'll have an entire episode on the Flintville monster next year on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. Well, that'll do it for this episode. A theme song is Knockers by Cinco, courtesy of Upbeat Music. Hey, before you leave, if you could, please do me just two favors. First of all, if you did enjoy the show, please leave a like on your favorite listening application. And secondly, if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. Love to have some new listeners out there to join you. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Keep your eyes open for the unusual folks, and thanks for stopping by. <laughs>